Welcome to Conquering Your Clownfish, a podcast dedicated to transforming disabilities into special abilities. I'm your host, Brady Murray. All right, today's a very special day. We have a special guest that I go way back with. So I'd like to welcome our guest, Tate Castleton. From the budding metropolis of Preston, Idaho is the town where he grew up. And as many of my listeners know, that's the town that I grew up in as well. And so Tate and I were just a few years apart, but I knew him and I knew his family. And it's just an absolute honor to be able to have him on the show today. Something very special about Tate. He is an individual that has grown up his entire life with a physical disability and has been able to find ways not to just survive, if you may, but I would say thrive and be able to succeed at a very, very high level, both personally and professionally. So Tate, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brady. It's just, it's beyond an honor to be here. So excited to be with you today. Absolutely. So we got to start back at the beginning in both of us at Preston, Idaho. We can't not start with our hometown in Idaho. So how was that experience for you growing up in a small town and maybe share a little bit about your family? Sure, you bet. You know, for me, I love being able to talk about Preston, Idaho, because I just feel like it was the perfect place for me to grow up as a boy and a wonderful community full of amazing people that did so much for me and for my family. And we were so fortunate. I was born a twin and we were the last in the family of seven boys. My mom had five boys and she wanted to try one more time for a girl and, and got twin boys. And so she threw her hands up and said, I'm not doing this anymore. We're done. So... So we, we were a large family and we lived right in the heart of town, right in the heart of Preston there. Uh, we had a home kitty corner from uh, the football field and just a block away from the high school and the middle school at the time. And so we were right there in the middle of town and right there in the middle of the action. My dad was a magistrate judge. He was the only magistrate judge in all of Franklin County. And so that was a unique experience um, growing up with your dad being the only judge in town and having to go to school with kids that might have uh, had to be in front of him. That's right. And uh, including, you know, my own brothers at different times. So anyway, but uh, we were just so fortunate to be able to, to grow up in Preston and to be surrounded by people that I believe were put into my life for a divine purpose. And so I, I'm just deeply thankful for the community of Preston and and we miss it. My parents moved from that community after living there for about 30 years. When I was serving an LDS mission and and they moved to the Boise area, which is where we live now. But this Preston and being able to go back and it's kind of weird to go back past your old childhood home and see it change a little bit and not have it be your home. So, but uh, just love that community and, and so grateful for it. Yeah, I feel absolutely the exact same way. What a tremendous place to get to call our home for when we were growing up. So you have mentioned that you are the youngest of seven boys. I don't know, did Taggart come before you? So are you officially the youngest or the second? <laughs> no, I was actually born first. I was born first and Taggart came about five minutes later. So Very good. I'm technically not the youngest. <laughs> there you go. That's right. And so, you know, I know your family, your family is a very high achieving, um, it was a, you're very athletic family and just outgoing family. And I'm really curious to learn more about how that was for you growing up with having a physical disability and being able to see your brothers, I mean, in particular, your older brothers and your twin brother, who was a great athlete. I mean, that had to be a unique experience. And I'd love to learn a little bit more about that experience for you growing up. 
It was for sure. In fact, you know, a lot of what I did as I grew up was patterned after and was motivated by things that my brothers had done and being able to watch them be active in a variety of different things, whether it was being involved in different school activities or being involved athletically, all of those things were important. But, you know, for me, when I was born, I actually, I visited with my parents the other day in preparation for this, um, just to, to learn a little bit more about those early, early years when our memories aren't quite as, as sharp. When my mom was pregnant with my twin brother and I, she got sick with uh, bacterial pneumonia. And they believe that because of that, I had a stroke when I was still um, in utero. And so when I was born, there was no obvious sign that anything was wrong or that anything was different. And they really didn't start to notice anything different about me until I got to the point where I could start to crawl. And I used my left hand differently than my right. And so because of my stroke, it left me paralyzed on the entire left side of my body. So I have very limited use of my left. And my left leg is, is a little bit shorter than my right leg. So I walk with a pronounced limp. So, and my, my left arm, you know, try as I might. And, and I just throughout my life have just gotten used to it. But if I'm not paying attention, it, it'll kind of curl up against my chest, you know? And, and so when I'm walking around with my arm curled up to my chest and with a little bit of a limp, it's, it's noticeable. And I'm sure I see that. And so, but one of the decisions that my parents made early on in my life um, was that they were never going to treat me any differently than my brothers. And I think that was one of the pivotal decisions that they made in my life. Um, they were always going to invite and encourage and support me in doing whatever, whatever I wanted. And so I grew up watching my brothers play basketball. Well, we had a large driveway in our home. We were growing up with a big basketball hoop and we would spend many, many hours outside playing basketball. And I wanted to be a part of that. And you know, while I was never great at dribbling with both hands, obviously, I was able to practice and practice and practice and learn to shoot pretty well with my right hand. So the thing that I, I learned as I grew up is that I could do things that my brothers did. I just had to learn to do them a little bit differently. And that was okay. And it wasn't always, didn't always look pretty. It didn't always look great, but I was able to do that. I also had brothers that were very involved in school. They were involved in student council. They were involved in a lot of different extracurricular activities, and those things interested me, and I wanted to, to do that. And so I ran for sixth and seventh grade class president when I was in middle school and was fortunate enough to be elected to do that, and that was a lot of fun. And then when I was a senior, I decided to run for student body president and was elected to do that. And so I did all of those things because I watched my brothers do them as they were growing up. And I wanted to be able to experience that because it just looked like they were having so much fun doing it. And it really became one of the great blessings of, of my life. I really do look back on my experiences in both, you know, uh, middle and high school and have nothing but the fondest memories of, of those times during, during my life. But being able to watch my brothers do what they did had a big part in all of that. So now Taggart was the, my twin brother Taggart was the starting varsity quarterback um, when we were seniors in high school. And so, you know, we, we obviously had our different interests. I was the student body president and he was the starting quarterback. And, but we still did a lot of things together. And they, all of my brothers were always very supportive of me efforts to do what, whatever I wanted to try. I have to give a huge shout out to your parents, something that I see in the work that I'm involved in and just being in the special, what I refer to as the special abilities community. I often find that the only thing holding back a child from rising up and singing the song they're meant to sing is what their parents believe their abilities are. And huge shout out to your parents for um, 
day one, making that decision that they want to allow you to ultimately rise up and sing the song that you're meant to sing. And as a result, that's blessed a lot of people's lives, not only yours, but a lot of people's lives and being able to see you achieve what it is that you achieved at a young age and also what you're doing right now. Would love to learn a little bit about once you got through your vocation, let's say at least high school, you chose to serve a mission for your church. And I'd love to learn about that experience. And then talk to us about after your mission and school and choice of profession and getting married, et cetera, and how that has all played into you know, what that may be like or how that may be different in having a physical disability. Sure, sure. Uh, one thing I want to mention too, this is a story my mom tells, is that when I was young, they took me to McKady Hospital in Ogden to meet with a neurologist. And that neurologist uh, did several tests and they met and looked over me for quite a while. And then in the follow-up visit, that neurologist told my parents that as I grew older, there would be very, very few things that I would be able to do and I would be very limited in my abilities. And my mom tells the story that when they left the hospital and they went out and got into the car, now she turned to my dad and said, we're never going back to that doctor again. Yep. So, and they didn't, and they never took his advice. They never took his counsel. And I think that was kind of that pivotal moment where they decided that they were going to support me in whatever I chose to do and encourage me to do everything that I wanted to do. So that, that was a big thing. And, you know, I, I'm grateful that they made that decision that day not to listen to that doctor because it did make a big difference. But here, I, when I graduated from high school, I, I remember that all of my life, I wanted to serve an LBS mission. I wanted to do that. And I watched all of my brothers go out and serve missions prior to me doing that. And a few of my brothers went overseas and several of them stayed in the States. And I was certain that because of my disability, that the church would probably want me to serve stateside and stays probably somewhere close to home. And that was okay with, I trusted that the Lord knew where I needed to be and where he wanted me to be. And I was willing to do whatever he asked. And so I remember that I was actually living in Provo over the summer with a friend of mine when my mission call came back in those days, it just came in the mail and, and I wasn't able to get home that weekend because I had to work. And so I just asked my parents to open it over the phone. And when they opened it and they read that I was being called to Melbourne, Australia, that was one of the few moments in my life where I felt this incredible rush of peace and just confirmation that that's what the Lord wanted me to do. And I sat there and I thought, gosh, I, I wasn't going to complain if I had to go overseas, but I didn't think he would throw me as far around the world as he did. Yeah, as far as it gets. Uh, so for a kid that spent the first 19 years of his life in a little town of 5,000 people, that was big. But I, I remember, and I will say this, you know, on your mission, you have an opportunity to serve with a companion all the way through your mission. And those companions change as you move through the months and years of your missions. But I know, and I have a deep belief that the companions that I had were the ones that the Lord knew that I needed. And every one of them, I only had five companions during the course of my two-year mission. And every one of them, I am still dear friends with today, 20, almost 25 years later, and I'm grateful for them. But I remember when I first arrived in Australia, the mission doctor met with me there and his name was Dr. Major. He was like a 75-year-old grumpy old man. I mean, he was just grouchy and just pretty stern. And uh, I remember he looked at me and, and he said, you know, on your mission, you have to ride a bike, right? And he said, are you okay riding a bike or do you think you need a car? And I just looked at him and I said, I'll do whatever the mission president asked me to do. And so for the first six months of my mission, I was on a bike and man, it was tough. It was hard work, but I knew how to ride a bike, but doing it in a shirt and tie and under degree weather every day and going from place to place, that was that was challenging, but I knew that the Lord was preparing me for 
providing me with the stamina that I would need to make it through my mission physically. And it was a wonderful joy to me to be able to do that. And I found that I often shared a message about Jesus Christ and the gospel. I shared that as much as I did stories about my own special abilities, as people would often ask. And there were many unique experiences that I had as a missionary, particularly with those that had special abilities that I knew that's why the Lord needed me to be there. And so I was grateful for that. And the question that I actually have on that is, do you feel like there were doors that were opened up to you as a result of individuals, maybe hearts being more open or more soft, or just simply seeing you and knowing that you came from another country and you're out there on a bike and it's a hundred degrees and you're in a shirt and tie and seeing you take on that challenge, you feel like that opened up doors for you that maybe your typical missionary wouldn't have had? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll share two things about that. I mean, first, I remember the first day when you were dropped off at the missionary training center in Provo, and I think I had like four suitcases and uh, it was difficult for me to manage this on my own, but I met my missionary training center companion soon after that. And his name is Ryan Camp. And he is still to this day, uh, one of the most Christ-like loving people that I know on the planet. And uh, the moment that I met him, uh, he put all of my fears at ease because I wasn't invincible. And I certainly didn't think I was, I was terrified. I, I didn't know what to expect on a mission and what that was going to look like. I had faith that I could do it. And I knew the Lord wouldn't call me on a mission and didn't feel like I could do it. But just those few, first few moments with Elder Camp were transformational for me. And we actually ended up serving the last three months of our mission together as well, too. So that was just an awesome, awesome experience. But I will say, yes, that you know, we spent a lot of time in Australia going door to door to meet and talk to people. And there were a few occasions where I do believe that people, I do believe their hearts were softened because they would look at me and they would say, well, why would you come all the way around the world and wear a white shirt and tie every day with the obvious disability that you have and work this hard day in and day out if it's not something that you didn't really believe in your heart? and was important. And we had moments like that where we were allowed to teach people and work with people because of those experiences. And I still have a letter in my office today, someone that we worked with that acknowledged that it was because of that unique situation that those doors were opened. And so I'm just grateful for that. And, you know, I, I never in any way expect that that's going to change something or that that's going to open doors, but I'm grateful that it does from time to time. Thank you for sharing that. Would love to hear what it was like when you got home. And so love to hear how you met your wife and what that experience was like, as well as your professional and educational background. Let's actually talk about that and share about that experience in meeting your future wife and what that experience was like in dating. I'm curious, as you were in high school, did you find dating that came naturally and simple and, and so forth. I mean, you were the student body president, so you had to be fairly popular, but <laughs> start a little bit around dating and, and also according to your wife. Sure. Sure. Well, I did, you know, when I, when I was growing up, I met someone at a fairly young age and we grew up together and it wasn't until about our freshman year that we developed an interest in each other that went beyond friends. And I did date the same young lady through my years of high school. And we did determine that before I left that we would try and make that work. 
over the two, you know, the course of two years on my mission. However, she did meet somebody while I was out on my mission. And so I am one of those that uh, falls into that category of having received that Dear John letter. But uh, I still am grateful for our friendship and the relationship that we shared because that was, that was just huge. But growing up, that never seems to be a significant issue, at least not for me. You know, my twin brother, people often joke that he was a little bit better looking and he was obviously athletic, And but uh, he didn't have a steady girlfriend like I did all the way through. So, but um, when I came home from my mission, you know, my parents had moved to Boise and I had never lived in Boise before. I had come for different things when I was growing up for conferences and things like that, but I hadn't spent a lot of time in Boise. So I did spend some time living with my parents for a few months after I got home, but I missed Preston. I missed the you know, our, our hometown. And, and, uh, and so I decided to enroll at Utah State University after a semester at Boise State and to go to school down there. My brother Devin was living in Logan and had some roommates and they had a spot open uh, in the home they were living on, on 1200 North in Logan. And, and so I, I enrolled at Utah State and I went there. And I remember one night talking to Devin about relationships and this was back in the early days of online dating, but I, I went on and I set up an account on an online dating service. And, and I just told Devin, I said, I, I just, I don't know, you know, now that I'm at this point in my life where I can get married and I can start dating, I just, I don't know if it's going to happen for me. And, you know, Devin's always been known as someone who's going to just tell you like it is. And, and he just looked at me and he said, Tate, whoever you're meant to marry being prepared for you right now, and that person's going to love you for the rest of your life, no matter what you look like or what challenges you have, they're going to be there for you and love you. And I did go through some ups and downs in dating when I first got home from my mission. In fact, I dated a young lady for a while that uh, I was pretty smitten by, and but she ultimately decided to walk away because in her own words to me, she, she just wasn't comfortable with my physical disability. And so she just wanted to be honest with me about that. I appreciate that. And I'm grateful for that. But just a few short months later, I, I did meet my wife through this online dating service. And we actually talked on the phone for about two months before we ever met in person. And it, we always talk about that because I don't know what would have happened if we would have met face-to-face -face first. And if my physical disability would have been a negative for her, or if it would have been a deal breaker for her, I don't know. But I think she will tell you that, that we fell in love over the phone. And I remember the very first time we met, and I think this was kind of divine providence because it really kind of helped to just put both of us at ease. But we decided to meet Provo, Utah. She was a student at BYU, and I was still at Utah State at that time. And we decided to meet in Provo, and we decided that we were going to meet in the parking lot of Well Edwards Stadium. And I, know, I remember we both pulled up in our cars, and I got out of my car, and she got out of hers. And I remember what she was wearing that day. She was wearing a, a white polo shirt with a denim skirt. And within about the first 20 seconds of her stepping out of her car, she got a nosebleed and her nose started to bleed. And we had to act quickly because she was wearing a wide shirt. We had to act quickly. And she had some friends that were living in the apartment complex right across the street from the stadium. And we rushed over there and got her cleaned up and eventually made it back to her sister's condo later that evening. And, and I just feel like in that moment, I think the Lord was kind of on my side because he knew how nervous I was for Emily to see me in my physical disability that first time. And he did something to kind of put us both in a situation where we weren't concerned about that. So I just get so, and am emotional listening to this. It's so incredible. 
it was pretty amazing. It was pretty amazing. And, you know, we dated for several months uh, after that. Um, over the course of a few months, I put about 20,000 miles on my car because I would a couple of days a week after I'd be done with work and school and Logan, I'd get in my car and drive the hour and a half, two hours to Provo and spend a couple hours with her until midnight or one o'clock in the morning. And then I'd turn around and drive back to Logan. And, and we did that back and forth for quite a long time. And we just knew, or at least I knew, from the moment that she had that bloody nose, I knew that she was the one for me. I just, I knew it. And if you ask Emily today, on Monday, we'll have been married 19 years. And if you ask Emily today, I think she will tell you that she has never, she has never seen my physical disability and that she sees me for, man, that uh, the Lord wants me to be and needs me to be. And I'm grateful for that. But at the same time, she knows too. And I have felt deeply about this my entire life, just in the, the roots of my soul, I just feel, and I feel this way about everyone with special abilities, but I feel like the Lord doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't make mistakes and, and there is purpose in all things. And as I have lived my life, I know, I know for certain that I needed what I have and that uh, it has been a blessing, I hope, not only to me personally, but to others as well. And so, you know, it, it's interesting because when we decided to get married, there was some apprehension on my wife's side of the family, I think a little bit initially, mm. um, because they weren't quite sure. They weren't quite sure what this all looked like and they weren't quite sure what Emily was thinking, uh, I think. And so, and that's natural. You know, I think that's natural. If I had been in their shoes, I probably would have felt the same. I think they had questions and, and they had some concerns, but, and they didn't know me and they didn't know my track record. They didn't know the things that I had done and accomplished entirely. And so I understood that, but all of these years later, particularly with my father-in-law, who probably the most questions, the most apprehension, I think all of these years later, they are some of my closest friends and I am deeply grateful for my wife's family, for each, each one of them. And you just know that's one of the puzzle pieces that the Lord puts in your life to create what becomes eventually a beautiful picture. And so I'm grateful for that and I'm grateful for that. And I think they have seen over the course of the last two decades that I, I'm someone that isn't defined by my physical disability, but someone who does use it to drive them forward for sure. And so we were married in December of 2004, December 18th, 2004. And I transferred to Utah Valley State College at the time. It's now Utah Valley University, but at that time it was UBSC. Uh, I had applied to get into BYU uh, with my wife. They, they told me I needed to go down the hill and, and stay at UBSC for us. So that's what I did. And we moved into this tiny little basement apartment. And, and we were going to school full-time. And I was working full-time for Ancestry.com. And that was just a great time in our lives. I, I'm thankful for that. And, and really grateful for the experiences that we had there um, and what we were able to do. But my wife only had about a year and a half until she graduated with her degree in, in uh, elementary education in or in, in education. And we decided because my parents were living in the Boise area and my wife's parents were living in the Boise area as well, that, that we would apply for some jobs, uh, teaching jobs in Boise. Is that and studied as well then was education? So not initially, not initially. So when I, in those early days of going to school, I was actually working on a degree in communications and journalism because part of what I did growing up in high school was I worked for the Preston Citizen, which was the local there. And uh, I was a sports writer for them from the time I was 12 until I graduated from high school. So I worked for them quite a bit. That. 
In fact, I tell my kids this story all the time because, you know, back then we had a computer in our house, but it was just one of those that had like the green blinking light on it. Yeah. And I would write my articles, which were probably no more than a paragraph or two at that time. I would write them on this computer and then I would print them off on that paper that you had to rip off the edges on. And there was no such thing as email back then. So I tell my boys all the time that I got on my bike and I would have to ride down to the Preston Citizen and turn it into Nisha Siemens if I had. And so that's what I did every week. And Phenomenal. On Sunday night, I would take our cordless phone that was in the basement. That was a cool thing back then too, the cordless phone. But I'd take the cordless phone and go into my bedroom and I'd have my yellow legal pad and my little recording device. And I would call coaches yeah. on Sunday night and I would interview them about you know, the games that had happened over the weekend. And then we'd use that to help me write these articles. So that's what I did for, for a long time growing up. And, and it just kind of felt like my destiny at that time. So I initially pursued a degree in journalism and communications. And, and that's what my bachelor's degree ended up being in. And, and when Emily got her teaching job here in Caldwell, or Valley View Middle School, you know, we moved here and, and I enrolled at Boise State and continued to earn my bachelor's degree. But in that time, I, I worked at a couple of different newspapers. I worked for Boise State's newspaper, the, the Arbiter, and I also worked for the Idaho Press Tribune in Napa. And it just kind of felt like for a while that was that was my destiny. But in 2008, when we had our oldest son, and it became clear really quickly that the life of a journalist is not really compatible with, with you know the life of a father at times, and I'm, because I had to be gone at weird hours of the day and schedule was wonky and it felt like there was never really time off right. there was these things happening so i sat down with my wife one evening and having watched her be a teacher for a few years at this point i said you know what what would you think about me going back to school and, and getting a master's degree in education what, what do you think about that and i think she was a little surprised for sure but she said if that's what you want to do let's do it and so that next semester i was enrolled in a master's program in education and and the next 18 months, that's what I did. And at the conclusion of that 18 months, I had a chance to student teach at a little, well, it's not so much little, but it was at a building that was just down the road from here. It used to be the old health and welfare offices, but it was the home of this local district's um, alternative high school. Wow. And, and at the time, they assigned me to do my student teaching there. Well, I had never heard of this school before that time. And so I did my student teaching there and I just absolutely loved it. I taught high school English and, and newspaper and, and I, I loved it. It was a great experience. And when I was done with it, I wanted to be able to work there full time. But at the moment, they didn't have an opening for me. And so we kind of went into that summer, not knowing what we were going to do or what the next step was. But within a few weeks, I got a call from the principal and he said, hey, we just had something open up to you. We're going to come and interview for this job. And I jumped on it. And for the next five years, that's where that's where I taught and worked. And I loved it. And in time, I became an instructional coach. And really, people are often curious about what instructional coaches do in school. I was just going to ask. But uh, it's a really unique job in that the principal that I worked for in, where I was an instructional coach is his number one directive for me was to just go help teachers get better. That's the job of an instructional coach. So you go into classrooms and you observe teachers and you get chances to meet with them afterward and have coaching sessions and talk about, you know, how they felt things went and what could be done better and what strategies could we put in place here or there, what's needed in the classroom and just walk them through the different processes of just how to how to continually improve. So 
all of us can continually improve. But the the number one foundation of that job is to make sure that people trust you, right? So um, it's hard to have effective coaching sessions with others if they don't trust you. And so that was a big part of my job too. It's just getting to know people and establishing relationships of trust. And and I really enjoyed that work. And that kind of springboarded me into the position that changed my life professionally. And I had an opportunity to go and work for Boise State University. They have received grant money for a project to help schools all over the state that lived in that are located in rural areas, put in place behavioral frameworks in their schools to help improve um, both behavior outcomes and academic outcomes. And, and my colleague and I had a chance to, to take that on. And we worked with 40 schools all over the state of Idaho for the course of five years. Uh, and uh, I had a chance to travel all over the state and walk into hundreds of schools and work directly with 40 in particular. So it was an amazing experience. And during that time, I earned a doctorate. And graduated with that just last December. And so that was just an incredible experience. And the pilot district for that project is located in Homedale, just down the road from where we live here. And about two years into this project, um, Homedale reached out to me and let me know that the elementary principal was retiring because of health concerns. And just wanted to know if I was interested in, because I was working in a grant-based project, I knew that it wouldn't last forever at Boise State. And so I went to Boise State and I said, well, how do you feel about me trying to, to go for this job and being able to stay on and continue working with the project at the same time? And so that's what ended up happening. I ended up getting the job as a school principal and had a chance to continue working as part of that project over the course of the last three years in particular. But uh, Anyway, where you're at, like kind of, this is amazing. So right now you're a principal and you have yeah. this last three years. And yep. so, so that you have one son, but you have more than that now. So I'd love to <laughs> learn about your family a little bit. Yeah. So in, like I said, in 2008, we had our, our oldest son, our Aiden. He is now a sophomore in high school. He's 15 and he's a great kid. But we kind of spaced our kids out a little bit in the beginning. We Three years later, we had our, our second son, Kay. Um, and then three years after that, we had our third son, Parker. And at that time, we kind of felt like we, we were done, felt that we were done. But as time went on, um, my wife just felt strongly that, that we weren't done yet. And I was pretty resistant to that. I felt like three was a good number and, and we were in a good spot. But my wife really felt strongly that we needed to try to try again. And so, and we did. And at that time, she suffered a miscarriage and that was a difficult thing for her and for us and and never an easy thing for anyone to experience, especially those that really feel strongly about starting a family that can be a really difficult thing. And it was for a time. It was for a time. And it kind of made us second guess what we were, were thinking, what we were feeling. And we just still felt strongly that we needed to try again. And so we did. And, and we welcomed our fourth son, Jack. And he was a wonderful addition for us. But then the tables kind of turned. And after that, I was the one that felt like we were really. Yeah. Uh, and so I just had this feeling like we shouldn't be done. And during this time, my wife's father started to become ill and uh, it was determined that he had Alzheimer's disease. And thankfully we lived close to them here in this area, but that was a challenging thing for my mother-in-law and for all of us to, to navigate. But toward the end of my father-in-law's life, we both agreed that we needed to try one more time. Um, and I said, this is going to be it. I'm not going to be like my mom and have five boys, <laughs> I want a girl and try again. I'm not going to do that. So 
we'll try it one more time and see we'll see what we get. And so my wife at the time was about eight months pregnant with our last boy. And it was at that time that my father-in-law's illness had kind of just come to this crescendo and, and was eventually put into a nursing home. And six days later, he passed in the summer of 20, uh, July of 2020. So right in the midst of COVID, and it was just an interesting time. But uh, Emily still had you know a couple more weeks to go with, with her pregnancy at that time. And so we didn't, you know, we, we did, that's kind of what we focused on next. But uh, two weeks after he passed, uh, she woke me up in the middle of the night, kind of had an emergency situation where, you know, without sharing too many details, she, she was bleeding pretty heavily. We couldn't get it to stop, but we had to call an ambulance in the middle of the night. She was rushed to the hospital and, and they did an emergency C-section and, and uh, Nash arrived in our family about uh, six weeks early. And so, and at that time he spent the next four weeks in the NICU. Um, and that was during COVID. So it was just a really weird time. Neither Emily or I could be together in the NICU ward. Wow. So we always had to visit separately, but Emily made it a point to be at the NICU every day with them all the time. And then in the evenings, I would sometimes spell her off and, and go, go up there, but, uh, just a, a really unique time. And at that, that was the summer that I actually started the job as an elementary principal. So there was a lot that was going on that summer. Well, Nash was Nash was born about five days before school started, so <laughs> so yes, COVID and everything, you know, and COVID and just trying to like that team. name though. That's a good yeah, name. yeah, that's a good one, right? That's yep. a good one. So, so it was it was a crazy time, but in looking back at it all, you know, we just knew that it was all meant to be the way that it was, and we're grateful for that. And you know, here we are, three and a half years later. And, and Nash is a, a wonderful addition to our home. Although I will say that I think if we'd have the last two first, we probably only have two boys. <laughs> we have five. Another slide intervention. <laughs> <laughs> so we have five wonderful boys, and they they are all different. It's amazing how our children can be so different, but yet can be just such an amazing fit in our family. It's just the incredible part of it. What an incredible journey that you've had, Kate. This is a very, very inspiring story and honestly, a very special podcast for me to be able to do. I do have one last question before I let you go. And that is, I'd love to ask you how you hope that others see those with disabilities or with special abilities, as I like to say. Well, Brady, I think if there's one thing that I believe more than anything above, above all else, that we all have divine potential. It doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter what circumstances that we're born into or what abilities that we have when we're born, but that every one of us has divine potential. Um, and that every one of us is sent to earth and given gifts and talents that need to be shared with everyone. And as I mentioned earlier, that I really believe that God does not make mistakes. And that is especially true when it comes to, to each of us. I really believe that those with special abilities in particular bring more light into the world and less darkness and bring more joy into the world and less sadness. I know for parents initially, if their child's delivered and, and they find out shortly after that we're within a few months, like my parents, that something's not right. It can be a shock initially. And for some, it can take some time to come around to the idea of it. But in my experience, that those who join families that have special abilities and bring greater joy, greater happiness, and a far 
greater measure of love into the home and into to the lives of all those who, who know that. If there is one thing that I think about often, you know, I, I have no idea what impact I have on people or when something, some interaction is profound for someone that I may not even have any clue that it is. But, but what I do know is that I hope that all of us will see each other as God sees each of us and that we treat each other that way too. Because I always tell my students all the time, particularly at the elementary school, that you can never, ever, ever go wrong by being kind to someone else. You just can't. And I think those with special abilities have a unique way of doing that. Um, they have a unique way of bringing more kindness and love into the world. And I see them as a tremendous blessing. And I, and I would hope that others do too, because there's just so much warmth and love and joy that can come from being around those with special abilities. And for that, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful every day. And, and I'm grateful that the Lord knows us well enough to know what and who we need in our life to help us reach our own divine potential, because that's what he wants for all of us. I cannot imagine a more better and articulate and better way to describe what we all believe is that very special gift that is special abilities. And you are a perfect example of somebody who I believe is singing the song they're meant to sing, and you're doing so in the service of others. It's starting right there in your own home, and it's going to your school and your community. And obviously, you've been such a tremendous blessing to me today. So thank you. Thank you for being on the show. And I have to say, I think that there needs to be another episode, and I think we need to have Emily on. And I would love to interview her because I think that would be a pretty amazing interview to hear. So well, I, I do too. I do too. I don't know if she would agree, but I do too. I think that would be great. So she is the better half of me. That is for sure. <laughs> Very good. Well, thanks for being on the show, Tate, and we wish you well. Thank you. It's been my honor and pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conquering Your Clownfish. If you liked what we discussed on the podcast today and want to continue the conversation, please visit us at conqueringyourclownfish.com. And please don't forget to subscribe.